Reggie, that's uh, some really good reminders. Uh, today, uh, we're going to start a new series, uh, and the series is titled Take Heart as we look at uh, Matthew chapter 14 uh, and 15. If you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. For those of you who may not know me, my name is uh, Brent. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get the privilege of uh, preaching the word this morning. Uh, If you will, uh, join me in prayer as we just ask God to just do a work in our hearts uh, through the reading of his word. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we do have to gather together. I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word pierces uh, through the depths of our hearts. Uh, I thank you uh, that your word teaches us, uh, that you are compassionate and patient with us, uh, that you bear, bear with us in our weaknesses and you transform our weaknesses. You change our hearts. Um, Father, I pray that as your word is preached, uh, you would be elevated, um, that you would be known, uh, that you would be made known, that we would see you as great, brilliant, beautiful, uh, and all that you are, Jesus. May you just reveal yourself to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher and that you've been promised to us uh, and that you're going to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at Matthew chapter 14. We're going to do a little bit of a walkthrough through it instead of a reading at the beginning. But let's begin and read through the first 12 verses of the chapter. At the time of Herod the Tetrarch, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, "This is John the Baptist. He has been raised he has been raised oh, I lost my place. <laughs> Sorry, he has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he didn't want to, (laughs) and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body, buried it, and they went and they told Jesus. So we see, uh, you know, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, and he was the forerunner to Jesus, the prophet who was coming to uh, announce the coming king. Uh, And uh, he's taken, put in prison, uh, beheaded, uh, and then Jesus is going to hear news of this uh, from the disciples. And this uh, leads us into verse uh, 13 and 14. Let's take a look. Now when Jesus heard about this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. I don't know that if you had uh, some really tough times uh, in your life, uh, but what Jesus does here is pretty remarkable, and it's incredibly noble. I think it's something that we look at, and we're all like, man, I wish that was really where my heart was. Whenever things are going really bad, uh, that that our heart would be for people so much so that we're willing to take space for them. 
Jesus is retreating. He's leaving. I mean, just consider the circumstances, right? His cousin was just unjustly beheaded. The guy who beheaded him thinks that he's him, resurrected. And consider, Jesus is aware. He has to be aware at this point that John's death means something for him. Jesus is going to become increasingly aware that, hey, my, John's dying means that my time for suffering is approaching. And so Jesus goes to retreat. He gets on a boat with his disciples. He goes across the Sea of Galilee. A cra- the crowds hear that he's coming. They beat him, foot race to the other side. They interrupt him from his retreat, from his mourning, from him taking his time. And look at Jesus' response to him. It's really remarkable. It says that he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The first thing I want us to see uh, is that Jesus is compassionate and that his compassion is genuine. The good news, Jesus is compassionate, his compassion is genuine, and his compassion is for us. In verse 14, we see the heart of Jesus, a heart full of compassion. And this is good news. At first, when I was reading through it the first couple of times, I, I looked at this word compassion. It really stuck out to me, but I, I didn't really catch the significance. So I started doing a little bit of word study. I don't know. Compassion may be for us just a word that we use. Oh, I feel compassion for this person, or I'm feeling compassion here or there. But when I looked at the word, the word literally translate to be moved as to one's bowels. So when it says Jesus saw the crowd and had compassion on him, that means Jesus saw the needs and saw the hearts of the crowd and was moved in his deepest part of his being. I don't know if you probably can identify at some point, maybe something good or something bad has happened, right? And you just feel it, you know, you know right? This is Jesus in this moment for this crowd, in their neediness, in their brokenness, in their interrupting him in the middle of something very important, him going to retreat and be with his father, he's moved to compassion for the people. Jesus isn't rolling his eyes at the crowd, and he isn't even going to just help them out of obligation because he owes it to them. Rather, Jesus identifies with the crowd, experiences a gut-level compassion, so much so that he takes his time for retreating and he stays with the people. One of the things I was thinking about is how we see Jesus. Right? I think most of us would say, oh yeah, Jesus loves us, right? Jesus is good to us, he's kind to us. But when we fail, I feel like sometimes that's not how we see Jesus. We believe that Jesus' disposition towards us is a response to our failure or our success. But this, this isn't really what, what scripture teaches I want you to ask yourself and be honest with yourself. When you fail, how do you see Jesus? How do you believe that Jesus is looking at you? With what face does he look at you? Do you see a Jesus who's disinterested, who's distant, who's disconnected? Do you see Jesus who's troubled by the burden of your continual sin and failure? Who's angry, who's furious? Maybe a Jesus who looks at you with that look that says, man, I really regret my obligation that I've made to you. I've got good news. This isn't what Scripture teaches. But I think for a lot of us, this is a really hard thing for us to maintain. I know for myself, uh, it really is a hard thing. I fail, and then I think, oh, you know, I mean, again, you know, right? You know, you're like, oh, God loves me. He's good to me. He's, he's patient with me. But like, 
we don't really believe that there's a gut-level compassion. That Jesus meets us in our brokenness. I think we allow our experiences, whether it's from our parents or people that we've respected, uh, the way that they would respond to our failure, I think it's really easy for us to assume that and place that on God. So we see lots of times how other people in our lives that we've looked up to, our pastors, our teachers, uh, our, our parents, maybe aunts and uncles, our grandparents, we see how they've responded to us and we assume that that's how God responds to us. And, and this is actually a pretty natural thing and it's what was meant to happen, right? We were created, Genesis says, in the image of God. We were made in his image and in his likeness, which meant that our lives, the way that we function, was meant to accurately portray who God was. But because of the fall, that has become broken. And we, no matter how awesome our parents or our grandparents or pastors or teachers are, we reflect a broken image of who God is. And so what we've got to do is look to Scripture instead of those other people to tell the truth about who God is. And I know that these are Scriptures that we go to, especially this first one. But I want you to really consider it. Put yourself in the frame of mind. Jesus' gut-level compassion. And then, and then hear this verse from John. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John. It's uh, John chapter 3. It's probably the most common verse uh, that you hear in the Christian circles. Um, and it's probably for a good reason. So uh, I would encourage you to allow it, uh, allow it to really sink. Okay? John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world. Now, this isn't the perfect world. This is the broken, sinful, needy world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, that the world might be saved through him. And if you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans. It's going to be a couple books over. Let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And this is good news. So if you project any of this other stuff about who God is and how he looks at you and how he responds to you, I want you to really hear this. Verses 6 to 8 say, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But... God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of disconnected, disinterested, angry person gives himself and suffers on behalf of someone that he hates? I love that Paul doesn't stop in verse, uh, verses 6 to 8, but he keeps on going. Look at verse 10. And this, is, this is good news. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I mean, I think we need to hear that as a church, as his people. If he loved you in your brokenness, as a sinner, as an enemy, that he gave himself for you, how much more now that as sons and daughters does he love you? That's, that's good news. I want us to see that Jesus' heart is good. That his heart is genuine. That his heart is marked by genuine compassion. And that compassion is for us. 
Let's move down and look at verses 15 to 21. The next thing I want us to see is that Jesus' compassion empowers us and his compassion equips us. So think about where we are. Jesus is on the way to retreat, trying to get away. The crowd's approaching him. He has compassion on them. He stays with them. He heals their sick. And in verse, 10, verse uh, 15, we see it's getting late in the day, right? Jesus' disciples come up to Jesus and they're like, hey, we should probably send these people away. It's getting late in the day. We're in the middle of nowhere. We need to send them away uh, to get food. And I was reading one of the commentaries. It was interesting that if a teacher uh, and disciples were to hold a group or a crowd of people, the responsibility or burden to feed them was then on the teacher. And so his disciples recognizing, as we'll see in the next verse, they don't have anything really to be able to take care of all these people, said, hey, we need to treat these people well and send them away so that they can go eat. And I love what Jesus says. He says, they don't need to go away. You, being the disciples, give them something to eat. If you know the story, I mean, this is pretty, pretty wild stuff. Look at verse 17. The disciples said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. Now, it gets to it a little bit later into the story, but you're going to see that there are 5,000 men, 5,000, and that doesn't include women and children. And rough speculation, some people say, okay, well, you, know, you can do some basic math of who would have been there, average family size. You're talking about half, possibly, potentially, half of a small football stadium full of people. So when Jesus says, you feed them, his disciples rightly recognize that their resources and their abilities are inadequate and that they simply don't possess what's necessary to do what Jesus has called them to do. But in verse 18, Jesus responds, bring them here to me. We don't have what it takes. We only have five loaves. We only have two fish. There's no way we can do this. And Jesus says, bring your resources to me. Then he orders the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples and they all ate and were satisfied. All ate and were satisfied. And afterwards they took up 12 basketfuls of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 besides men and women, or I mean besides women and children. Consider this picture. I saw this earlier in the week, and I thought this was really kind of a mind-blowing piece. Maybe even some foreshadowing. Jesus calls his disciples to something, right? He says, feed the people. Right? Yes? Right. He gives a resource. He says, feed the people. They say, we don't have it. He says, bring it to me. He takes their insufficient and adequate resources upon himself. He then lifts them up to the Father blesses them before the Father, their resources now taken upon himself, broken before the crowd, and then their broken resources, which were unable, are then sent out, multiplied, and used to feed the people. I don't know if you see the cross there at all, but it's pretty incredible. He takes the broken resources upon himself, or he takes the inadequate resources upon himself, it's broken, and then redistributed for the crowd. So this story, not only is it a really cool picture of the cross, and not only is it an amazing miracle that he feeds 5,000 plus uh, with five loaves and two bread, but this is also happening within the context of Jesus' ministry, right? He's called his disciples to follow him. They're following him. 
And on the way, Jesus is equipping his disciples for the work of ministry and for what's to come. Right? If you know the book of Matthew, you know at the end of Matthew, Jesus is going to call his disciples to be disciple makers. Notice what's happened here is Jesus is also equipping in this scene his disciples for work of ministry. Right? He's teaching them that he is able to accomplish his work in and through them despite all odds. And by extension, for us, he is able to accomplish his work through us no matter how insufficient our resources whether they be spiritual resources, emotional resources, physical resources. It's good news that no longer because of this we're, we're not unable. In his compassion, he's invited us to bring our weaknesses, limited resources to him. He's taken upon himself and multiplies and uses them for his kingdom work. So the last thing uh, I want to see from this story is uh, from verses 22 to 33. And this might be my favorite part of the story. Uh, because Peter's, I don't know, I find myself doing a lot of the things Peter did. Um, but again, context, next part's happening. The people have just eaten. They're satisfied. The leftovers are collected. And in verse 22, we see immediately he made the disciples, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he being Jesus was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So, try to picture what's happening, right? It's easy for me if I can see it in pictures and I can kind of see the story taking shape. Jesus sends the crowds away. Then Jesus goes and retreats to pray by himself, Evening comes, uh, and then we see the disciples have gone off. He sent the disciples, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So this is a pretty long period of time. Again, just so you can kind of see what's happening. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, if you don't know, which I didn't know before uh, getting ready, is about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. And apparently there's some mountains over to one side where some pretty... Uh, wicked wind comes off and creates a pretty tumultuous situation. So just, just, just consider, has anybody ever been in the ocean or been in a large body of water on a boat? Have you ever been sitting at the beach and looked out at the ocean and were just taken away by just how incredibly powerful and massive the ocean was? I don't know, water's kind of a scary thing, right? Uh, I was talking to Kelly last night and now, this made me think, like, imagine if I was on a boat, Jesus had just sent me away. I mean, we're not talking about a cruise ship. We're talking about a fisherman's boat, a small boat, out in the middle, somewhere between, you know, probably 8 to 10 miles off of shore, 5 to 10 miles off of shore somewhere. Massive waves are going to where you're not able to go anywhere. I mean, these guys would have had paddles and maybe a sail, right? I mean, no boat motor. The wind's coming. It's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., and look at the next scene. And then they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. I don't know, but last night I saw it and I was like, man, that is terrifying. I mean, it is like, I mean, you can imagine the fishermen's tales, right? I mean, the, all the ghost stories that you've heard. And now you see a body. And it, it's interesting, the Mark's account of it doesn't say that Jesus was going to the boat. Mark's account says that Jesus was walking across to the other side. 
So that, is, that means that this ghostly figure was not walking to the boat. He just like happens to be walking by, and the disciples happen to be up awake at 6 a.m., somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., so you know delirium is probably setting in a little bit. Um, and water, I mean, I don't know, I just was thinking about the fear there, and I was thinking, like, water is actually pretty scary, right? So I, was, uh, I told this to Kelly last night, and she said, oh, this works. And then I told it to a couple other people, and they're like, no, I think that's only you, man. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to do it anyways. So think, think about how scary water is. Does anybody have, like, friends with swimming pools, or did you grow up with swimming pools? Maybe you're not as scared as I was. But uh, we would go over swimming all the time. I had a friend who had a pool down the road from me, and we would go swimming. Uh, and, like, I don't know why, but in our minds we would talk about, like, oh, I wonder what comes out in the water when it's dark. Um, and then your imagination gets rolling, and then it gets dark. And I can remember on multiple occasions, like, somebody coming by and, like, cutting off the pool light. And, like, I don't know, you just went from, like, swimming in the dark and being happy and just, like, watching out for, you know, the occasional spider to, like, oh, my gosh, there might be a shark in the pool. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why. Like, in my, I just saw the whole pool. There's nothing in the pool but people. Uh, this made me really like sharks and minnows at night because I, like, would go as fast as I could uh, and I could get out without looking like a wimp. Um, but, I mean, water, water is pretty scary, right? It's, it's an unknown thing. And just consider the disciples are out in the middle of, the, in the middle of this lake, massive waves, small boat, and they see this figure walking by. And it says, but when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and cried out in fear, which seems, I mean, terribly reasonable. I mean, what are the other options if you're the disciples? I mean, you're like, am I, did I, we have too much wine? Is it, you know, you could say, is it the salt water, but it's fresh water, so that doesn't work. Uh, nonetheless, they see him walking and they're terrified. So look at verse 27, and I love this. Look at how Jesus responds to their fear. Real, genuine fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Hear that. Jesus said to them, in their absolute, I mean, this is like the worst nightmare possible. And Jesus says, Take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. Jesus responds to the disciples' fear here with compassion and he calms their fears and assures them of his presence. lost my page. So in verses 28 to 31, Peter then calls out, and I'm not sure what's going on in Peter's mind. He's like, Jesus is like, hey, take heart, it's me. And Jesus is like, hey, so if, it's, uh, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. Jesus says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and goes to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And, he, and beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand. He takes hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I, I really do. I said, like I said a second ago, I really do love this portion of the story, right? In this moment, Peter is absolutely overtaken with fear. He and the disciples. Then he goes out onto the water, is walking on the water, then sees the wind. And that's, I mean, you got to think, that's about to be some pretty whipping wind to be able to see the wind. I mean, that means if you're able to visualize and see the wind in the middle of a lake, that means there must be some water being thrown around. I mean, this is a pretty tumultuous situation. He's overcome with fear. He doubts. He lacks faith. And the thing is about Peter is like, Peter knows Jesus, right? Peter just saw Jesus 
feed 5,000 plus, plus women and children. Jesus has healed people in front of Peter. Peter has seen Jesus cast out demons. And still, Peter is filled and overcome by fear. In this moment, as the psalmist writes, his heart and his flesh fails him. And Jesus responds to Peter's fear and his failure with compassion. I mean, we know that Jesus is obviously saving Peter, Peter from drowning, right? Lord, save me. And he reaches, he gets him, he pulls him up. He saves him from drowning. But in the way that he responds to him with compassion, he actually frees him also from the fear that accompanies our shame and our guilt and our failures and our doubt. Jesus' response to Peter, even when he says to Peter, why did you doubt, oh, you have little faith? Understand that Jesus is not humiliating Peter. Jesus is shepherding Peter's heart. He's reminding him of who he is, that he's all-powerful, that he's compassionate, that he's kind, that he's present. This same Peter will continue to fail, right? I mean, if you know the rest of the New Testament, if you know the rest of the Gospels, you know Peter will continue to act like an idiot. He'll continue to do really dumb things. But he continues to take his fears and his failures and his outright sin and takes them and gives them to Jesus. He brings it to Jesus over and over and again. And the same Peter who even denies Jesus three times, when Jesus said, you will deny me, no I won't, he does it anyways. This is the same Peter who Jesus, because he's bringing it to him, will increasingly empower and embolden Peter. He equips Peter for the work of ministry. He takes Peter along. He's not just like, Peter, you're an idiot, you didn't get it right. He's shepherding his heart. He's saying, no, 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 do you know why you were filled with fear? It's because you didn't believe I was who I said I was. And he shepherds Peter. He brings Peter along. And this is the same for us. I think oftentimes, man, we're really like tough on ourselves and we really don't believe the gospel and we really believe that, man, if we could just like get it together and just do it right, everything would be good. But this isn't what Jesus is demonstrating with Peter. He's bringing him along like a father would bring along his son. Teaching him, training him, equipping him. That doesn't mean not disciplining him, even disciplining him. But all of that is coming from a heart that's marked by compassion. And that's good news for us. And I think that transforms the way that we see our relationship with God. It's not like, hey, I'm going to do these good things so that God will be good. That's believing that your doing changes God's disposition towards you. Remember the good news. Remember the verse in Romans that we went through. The good news here is that this Peter is the same Peter Jesus will charge to feed his sheep. It's the same Peter that Jesus calls to lead his church. This is good news. If you're anything like me and you fail, this is good news. And look at verse 32 and verse 33. And when they got into the boat, the winds ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Look at how Jesus' compassion takes his disciples' fear, failure, inadequacy, and transforms those things into hearts marked by worship. 
Notice that worship comes from an experience with Jesus, seeing actually how good Jesus is. And then let's look at the last three verses. Excuse me if I say this word wrong. It's kind of a hard word. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Here's a truth that we see here, right? Those who experience, well, first, who are these people who are coming to him? They're the same people who experienced Jesus' compassion when he was on his way to retreat. They go back to their towns, and when they land the next morning, they have already brought people over because they've experienced the goodness and compassion of Jesus. Hear this. Those who experience the compassion of Jesus lead other people to Jesus. Those who experience the compassion of Jesus will lead people to Jesus. I want you to consider how if you believed that Jesus' compassion was genuine, that his compassion equipped and empowered you, and that Jesus' compassion frees you from fear, how it would transform the way that you relate to God. As Hebrews, if we understood, as Hebrews instructs us, I think we would have the confidence to approach the throne of grace boldly, no matter our success or our failure. It would transform the way that we even relate to ourselves, right? Because as we became more and more aware of how holy God was and more and more aware of how sinful we were, we would not succumb to fear or despair, but rather we would be filled with gratitude and love for God as we realize just how much that he's done for us in Christ. And lastly, I think it would transform the way that we relate to those around us. Again, when we've experienced Jesus and his compassion, we want this for others. We see with eyes of compassion, hearts of compassion for other people. We show compassion. We will show compassion when we've experienced his compassion because we've been shown compassion. We loved, as John writes, because he first loved us. So as we transition to a time of response like we do each week, I just have a couple of things before give the spiel as far as coming and taking communion and giving. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to hear the good news. In compassion, God, God longs after you. His heart is for you, and he invites you to receive him. While we take communion, while we respond, I encourage you to respond where we are and receive Christ. If you know Jesus and you find yourself really wrestling with complacency, especially as we talk about compassion, and you're like, man, I haven't felt compassion for people for some time, I'm going to say it's because you probably haven't felt Jesus' compassion in some time. And I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles in our time of response and go to Matthew chapter 18 and read the story in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And for everybody, as we respond, hear the good news. Take heart. We've not been left alone. We don't have to work in our own strength. I want to encourage you to allow Jesus to empower you for whatever work he's called you to, whatever ministry that he's put you in and called you to. And even when your heart and flesh fail, just like Peter, remember that God is the strength of your heart and he is your portion forever. So reflect on these things. We're going to move into a time of uh, response. We're going to take communion. Uh, this is where each week we publicly uh, proclaim that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is.
uh, we come up through the front aisle, we take the bread, we dip it in either the wine or the juice, and we take it. And we proclaim this good news to one another that Christ died for us. He was raised for us, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, praying and leading us. So come down. If you're not a believer, if you don't believe Jesus, we ask you not to take communion with us. And that's not because we want to make you feel weird or awkward or uncomfortable, but we just don't want you to be saying something that you, you don't believe to be true. Rather, like I said, reflect, believe, and receive. You can pray and say, Jesus, I want, I want to know I want to know you. Um, and if you do, feel free to talk. There'll be people in the back with uh, lanyards on that say, how can we pray for you? You can get with me or anybody else. And we'll be glad to walk you through that. Oh, uh, This is also a time that we give our tithes and offerings. There's a, uh, there's a basket in the back uh, for that. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us as we lead into that time. Uh, and uh, yeah, so just, just join me uh, as we pray. Father, I thank you for your word and what your word does, what it does to us, what it does through us. I thank you for the depth of your work. I thank you that your compassion for us is genuine. I thank you that you don't leave us to our own selves, but you equip us and you empower us for what you've called us to. I thank you uh, that you don't leave us in fear and failure. And when we fail and when we have fear and when we doubt, you're patient with us and you're generous with us. Lord, as we come, uh, as we come and we take, remind us Meet us, move in and through us, Jesus. We pray that your word uh, would shape us and that we would just increasingly submit all of our lives uh, to you and your increasing, uh, your empowering presence and lordship. Jesus, I thank you for your work. I thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.